Well, a very good morning and a Merry Christmas Eve Eve to you all. It's good to be here. And every year, just time just flies right by. And here we are again. It's almost Christmas. A more year goes by. But before we start, I just want to say a special thanks to all of you who were praying for me last week and throughout the week. I was going pretty sick last Sunday. couldn't be here, but I'm sad to miss you guys, but I'm glad to be back. And bear with me. I'm pretty much back to good health. I have a little tickle in my throat, so I think I'll make it through. But thanks for praying, and it's good to be back here. Christmas, as we know it today, has so many traditions, it always has. And over the past hundred years, though, Christmas has developed its own folklore. Stories have cropped up which develop the mythology surrounding Christmas. Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, and more. There is now a very detailed and developed folklore about Christmas, none of which can be found anywhere in the Bible, of course. These legends were all made up mostly in the last hundred years. What's interesting, however, is that even for us who like to stick closer to the Bible when it comes to our Christmas traditions, there are still plenty of myths. Many people still have aspects of the true Christmas story wrong. Remember as a kid, every Christmas Eve, myself, my two sisters, our cousins, we were at my grandma's house and our parents made us act out the Christmas story. There my grandma's den is. Good memories. But looking back, we had many details wrong. For example, how did Mary get to Bethlehem? Rode on a donkey, right? Not so much. The Bible doesn't say that, actually. The Bible doesn't say anything about how she got there, just that she came with Joseph. Also, when did Mary and Joseph show up in Bethlehem? On the night they gave birth, right? Again, no. The Bible doesn't say that. It just says that she was in Bethlehem when she gave birth. She could have, and it's likely, got to Bethlehem days, even weeks before giving birth to Jesus. And then there's this inn. It's like the Motel 6 of the ancient world. Everyone knows about the inn. In every children's Christmas play, someone someone else has that one role, the role of the innkeeper, and they have one line. And what's their line? I'm sorry, there's no room at the inn. But in the Bible, no innkeeper. There's no innkeeper. Also, most people think Joseph and Mary were they were rejected by all these ancient hotels, and so they wandered into some open barn to give birth. But that is not necessarily the case. You see, the, the word for inn, there was no room at the inn, that word just refers to a guest lodging area, a guest room. For example, you remember the, the Last Supper? Christ, his disciples, they have that last Passover. Remember where, where they held that? In the upper room. That's the same word for inn. It's just a guest room, a guest chamber. So it's more likely that Joseph and Mary, they were staying with someone they knew, perhaps a relative, when Jesus was born. However, there was no room for them in the guest quarters, at the inn, you could say, and so they stayed in the common area of the house. Later on, when we find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, where are they? They're, they're in a house, not, not a barn. And it's likely they haven't moved. Now, this common area was also where the household animals were kept. And it is true, Jesus was laid in a manger, which is like a feeding trough for animals. But no specific animals are mentioned. And almost surely there were no cattle grazing around baby Jesus when he was born in the manger. And all the few details we do have point out that Mary and Joseph did not wander into some strange barn when they gave birth. Now, you have a nativity scene at home. You probably have shepherds coming there looking at baby Jesus in the manger. And that's good. That's accurate. That's from Luke. But you probably also have those three wise men, those three kings also standing around 
baby Jesus in the manger, and that would be wrong. You see, these three wise men were not present for the birth of Jesus. In fact, they didn't show up until a couple months after he was already born. Now, how many magi were there? What We don't know. Most people think three because three gifts were given, gold, frankincense, myrrh, but we don't know. One thing we do know, they definitely were not kings. That myth didn't start until the Middle Ages. But there's a lot more, there's many more myths about these Magi figures. That their names were supposedly Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. One came from India, one came from Egypt, one came from Greece. They were baptized by Thomas, and their bones were said to be discovered by St. Helena and transferred to Milan. Of course, all of this is about as true as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but these myths develop over time. Now, some of this may be surprising to you. You've been watching Christmas plays for years and you had no idea so many of the details were wrong. Or you've had your nativity scene set up that way forever with the three kings right there. You never second-guessed it. How did all these mistruths infiltrate the real story of Christ's birth? And the answer, more times than not, is through songs. That's right. All those Christmas carols that are so familiar to us, we love the words, we sing them, well, they just don't have that accurate of lyrics, but they enter our minds as truth. Take, for instance, the lyrics to We Three Kings. This carol was written by Reverend John Henry Hopkins in 1857 for the General Theological Seminary in New York, their Christmas pageant. And if you've read most of the verses, they're great. Great words, great music, great theology in them. It's just that first line. That first line. You know, you know the line. We Three Kings of Orient are... Wait a second. How do you know where there, how do you, where does the Bible say there was three of them? Where does the Bible say they were kings? Where does the Bible say they came from the Orient? None of these things are found in Scripture, but now we, we call them We Three Kings. There are many more hymns or Christmas carols like this that we sing about without necessarily thinking about the words, and the result is that we have ingrained into our minds several wrong things about Christmas. What do you do about that? Well, the solution is, of course, to return to scripture, to get things right, and to see how things really were when Christ was born. And if you can guess, that is what we're going to do this morning. In particular, I've mentioned these these magi, or wise men, or, or three kings several times. I want to spend our time today really getting to the bottom of these figures. If you're here last year, we had a, a very brief, small Christmas Eve service. And I just preached a mini-sermon, you know, 15 minutes on the magi. And I knew right then I wanted more time. I needed more time to flesh out and really uncover the story behind these magi. And I knew a year ago that come next Christmas, I would devote the whole sermon to the magi. Here we are. And now we have the time. We're going to finally get to the bottom of these supposed three kings. And Matthew chapter 2 is where we're headed. So take your Bibles with me and open to Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12 is what we'll be looking at. That's our passage. Our goal today, it's pretty simple. We're going to pace our way through Matthew 2, explaining and understanding the real Christmas story, as Matthew tells it, all the while trying to get to the bottom of these Magi figures. You know, forget what you saw at your kid's Christmas play. Forget what you sang about in the carol. What really happened during Christ's birth? We're going to find out. It's not a mere mental exercise, however. 
As you'll see, there, there's such a rich and profound spiritual message attached to these Magi figures. And, and I want you to see it. You don't want to miss it. We'll save that for the end. And we're going to approach our passage today running commentary style. If you don't know what that means, that means we're just going to look at the passage, go verse by verse, explain it as we go along, and that's it. No outline. Don't worry about an outline this morning. Just nice and simple. We're going to read the word and learn from it. And we start in verse 1. And the first couple of verses here, they're loaded with information. We get a lot of our setting and background in the first couple of verses. So we'll spend some time here. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now, he says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now stop there. Here we're introduced to, to the key players of this section, the Magi, and I want us to begin by getting more acquainted with them. After all, we've already exposed some myths about the Magi. What does the Bible actually say about them? What can we learn about who these guys really are? Let's start with this. And just to give you a little structure, how about we just answer the, the six most basic questions we can about the Magi? You know, who, what, where, when, why, and how. That'll, that'll get you started. That'll get you pretty well acquainted with these Magi. Let's do that. Let's start with this. Number one, who? Who were these magi? Who were they? We'll start with the word in the Greek. It's magos in the singular. Magi or magi in the plural. And this word refers to a magician, a sorcerer, someone associated with the occult. And yes, this is where we get our word magic or magician from. But the meaning of the word or the people behind it goes further back. The Magi, they first showed up in the 7th century B.C. Early on, the Magi were a tribe of people known for their wisdom and knowledge. They specialized in the study of stars, astronomy, and astrology. These are the guys that were writing the ancient horoscopes. These are the guys that they'd be reading your palm, they'd be predicting your future, interpreting your dreams. These were the Magi back then. And today, most of us look down on such things as nonsense, but back then... They were respected for their great knowledge. And the Magi even rose to positions of power and prestige. In the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, five times the Magi show up. The same group of people that these Magi show up. And what were they doing? Well, because of their knowledge and power, they were part of the king's advisory council. Now, you can read through Daniel on your own. We're not going to turn there. But just long story short, Daniel himself who was a captive Jew, he became the ruler of these magi. Daniel 2.48 reads, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And that includes the magi. Daniel himself was part of the king's advisory council. He proved himself to be the greatest, so he was put in charge of them all, And you're going to see later, Daniel's influence over these magi is going to come back into play later. Just keep that in the back of your mind. But for now, this is who these magi were. They were men of knowledge. Knowledge of the stars, knowledge of the occult. That's what they were known for. All right, question number two. What? What were they doing? First, who were they now? Secondly, what were they doing? Look again at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he 
has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. These magi, these astrologers, these occultists, they show up in Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're looking for Jesus. They're looking for the newborn king of the Jews to worship him. That is unexpected. They didn't come to trade. They didn't come to barter. They didn't come to vacation or sightsee. They didn't even come to visit the acting king of the Jews, Herod. They came to find the newborn king, Jesus, and to worship. You can already see God is starting to draw all men to himself through Jesus. It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what background you have. Here are these, these pagan Gentiles coming, becoming true worshipers of Christ. Jesus is the way of life for all people, Jew and Gentile, no matter your background, no matter where you come from. That actually leads us to our third question. Speaking of where you come from, where did they come from? Who, what, where now? Number three, where did they come from, these magi? Well, verse one says they came from the east. That's it, plain and simple. They came from the east. Where in the east? The Bible doesn't exactly say, but given who they are, it's pretty clear they came from either Persia or Babylon. It's where they were known to be. It's really, it's modern day Iraq and Iran, which means these magi traveled some 700 plus miles to visit the newborn king. That's quite a journey. Remember that. I'll come back. Question number four, when? When did they arrive? Now, now let's get the chronology figured out. When is this happening here in Matthew 2? Notice in, in verse 1, the Magi, they show up not at Christ's doorstep. They show up to Jerusalem after he was already born looking for him. And then they later go and find Jesus. So our question is, how much later, how long after did they find Jesus? A day? A month? A year? How long? Well, we learn in Luke chapter 2 a few things that happened right after Christ was born. You don't have to turn there. After eight days after Christ was born, what happened? He was circumcised, according to Jewish tradition. Then, 33 days later, what happened? His parents took him to the temple and they offered sacrifices for him, purification sacrifices, also according to the Jewish law. According to law, after a mother gave birth to a son, 40 days afterward, she was to make a sacrifice, bring a sacrifice to the temple, and that sacrifice was to consist of a one-year-old lamb and a, a dove or a pigeon. But if the family was really poor, the law made a provision, you, you can just bring two doves or two pigeons. Now, When Mary and Joseph made that sacrifice for Jesus, what do you think they brought? They brought the two pigeons because they were that poor. And that actually, when you think about it, it's pretty solid evidence that the Magi have not visited by this time. Think about this. When the Magi came, remember what they brought with them? Brought some stuff. Brought some wealth. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. That's all wealth. So in other words, after the Magi visited, Joseph and Mary, they weren't poor anymore. We don't know exactly how much wealth they brought, but it was no small amount. And and bottom line, they definitely could have afforded a one-year-old lamb for that sacrifice if the Magi had already come and given them their wealth. But since Mary and Joseph were still so poor 40 days after Christ's birth, most likely, most likely we say the Magi had not been there. It was only after this, after the purification sacrifice at the temple, that the Magi visited Jesus. But it couldn't have been too long after because the Magi interacted with King Herod. 
King Herod himself died just a year or so after Jesus was born. So put this all together. Let me wrap this up for you. It appears the Magi did not visit Jesus until he was between two and, and six months old. Six months old. Somewhere in that range. Two and six months. The bottom line is this. This, for some of you, blows a hole in your nativity scene. It's time to change. Now, those three wise men, they don't belong in your makeshift little barn. You don't have to throw them out. That's what you do. Just, just have your little nativity scene all set up. Just take the three wise men and put them across the room somewhere. Put them on a coffee table, somewhere else. Just make, make them in transit, somewhere two months out, and you'll be good to go. So when did they arrive? Somewhere two, six months after Christ was born. All right, let's move on to the next question. Who, what, where, when? Number five, why? Why were they interested in Jesus? Why were they interested? These magi were Gentiles, and they were pagans, why on earth are they traveling 700 plus miles to find the king of the Jews? It seems odd, but, but consider a few things. Remember, thousands of Jews remained in Babylon and Persia after the exile was over. And these Jews influenced those around them. So could the Magi, could they have been influenced by those Jews? It seems likely after we keep in consideration that they were already under Daniel's influence. So did the Magi come to hope in the Messiah through all this Jewish influence? It's, it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. But we'll never know for sure because the Bible does not say. What we do know for sure is found in verse 2. They come asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews for? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Why did they come searching for Jesus? Because they saw his star in the east. The star made them do it. They came because of the star. This brings up a whole new question. What on earth or what in heaven is the star? Well, because these magi, they were known for their knowledge of the stars, remember? Some have speculated that this is some sort of heavenly phenomena, this outer space phenomena. People have suggested a, a supernova, a comet, a meteor, even the planet Jupiter coming into alignment. These options all seem unlikely, though, given the supernatural nature and supernatural purpose of the star. These magi, they saw this star thing in the east where they lived. When they saw the star, though, it did not guide them to Jerusalem. No, they saw the star and then they went to Jerusalem on their own because that's where they thought they would find the king. Later, once they were in Jerusalem, the star reappeared. Then the star led them from Jerusalem five miles south to Bethlehem. And that's what verse 9 says. Skip ahead to verse 9 in chapter 2. It says, After hearing the king, they, the Magi, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So it's only going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But nonetheless, here's the point. Stars move to us, it appears away, but, but they don't guide, they don't lead, they don't appear, disappear, and, and they definitely don't stop. Nothing we know fits the description of this star. It, it's supernatural. This is something supernatural. And that actually makes the most sense because a supernatural birth is taking place. Something miraculous is happening. If that's the case, if, if this star, it's, if it's supernatural, still, what is it? 
Most believe it was some form of God's Shekinah glory. And what that is, remember in the Old Testament, most of the times when God reveals himself, it's in some form of light. God is pictured as being shrouded with light. And also, remember in the Old Testament, when someone comes into the presence of God, remember what happens to them? They start glowing. They start shining and radiating because of God's presence. Again, the Bible doesn't say, but but to think that this star, that this radiant light in the sky, which is all the word means, is in fact God's supernatural glory guiding the Magi to Bethlehem doesn't seem far off. All right, our last question, number six. Who, what, where, when, why? Now, number six, how, how do they learn about Christ's birth? How do they even learn about this? How do they know? That's a good question. How did these guys know the king of the Jews had just been born? Well, again, we have the possibility that somehow Daniel taught them. Remember, they were all, at first, under the influence of Daniel. Daniel, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. And his prophecies are the most specific about the timing of the Messiah's coming. So is it possible that Daniel passed on to them some revelation, some vision, about the timing of the Messiah's coming, and they in turn pass it down from generation to generation. We have to say, possible. It's entirely possible. But again, as fun as that sounds, I think a more supernatural explanation is in order. Most likely, God simply spoke to these magi, revealed himself to them, and told them directly about the birth of the king of the Jews. Later in verse 12, we'll get there, the magi are warned by God in a dream not to return to Jerusalem. And it's likely God spoke to them in a dream in the first place. In the first place. When they first saw that star, that light in the east, likely it was accompanied by some sort of revelation explaining the significance, the purpose of the star. All right, quick recap. Who were these magi? They were a group or a sect of wise men Men who studied the stars, they dabbled in the occult. They were known for their special knowledge. What were they doing? They were looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Where did they come from? They came from the east, probably Persia or Babylon. When did they come? Well, anywhere between two to six months after Christ was born. Why were they interested in Jesus? Because God's star, likely a representation of God's glory, compelled them and guided them there. And finally, how did they even learn about the birth of Christ in the first place, what's well, possible that it was Daniel's influence, but most likely it was through direct revelation from God in a dream. Now, there's one more quick question that I skipped over. I couldn't fit it in. I'm going to sneak it in here. It's another how question. How many were there? We asked that before. How many were there? You think three. You've all thought three. But when you take a closer look, it actually seems like there were much more or many more than three. When you look at verse 1 again, these magi show up in Jerusalem. What do they start doing? They start asking people, you know, where's, where's the king of the Jews? The new one, the newborn king of the Jews. That word saying at the end of verse 1, present active possible, all that means is they were just continuously asking people. They were going from person to person like, hey, do you know where the king is? Have you, have you seen this newborn king of the Jews? They were expecting people to have an answer. That, of course, these Jews are going to know where their king is born. They go all over town asking about the king. Then look at verse 3 of Matthew 2. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. 
Now here's the point. Three guys walking through a huge city like Jerusalem are not going to cause much of a stir. Not going to happen. But all of Jerusalem was troubled because of the Magi. Their questioning even made it to the top ranks, to the king himself. This leads us to believe they caused quite a scene in Jerusalem because there, there was a lot of them. Just think about this. They were embarking on a 700-mile-plus journey. You don't take that with just two other guys. Also, they were bringing with them a lot of wealth, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. That's not something you leave unguarded. Most likely, they were traveling in a big eastern caravan, an entourage of servants, animals, for this long journey. And when they showed up in town, everybody knew it. Here's this big caravan coming through. The whole city was disturbed And they knew about these magi and what they were doing. How many were there? We don't know for sure, but likely a lot. Dozens, more, we don't know. But likely a lot. All right, well, we're we're in good shape. We've made it through the first couple of verses here, but we've covered a lot of our background information. Remember, we're just going through, trying to uncover what's the real Christmas story, as Matthew tells it, really after Christ was born. Now we know a lot more about the magi, but it's time to move on. Let's get to verse 3 now. Look again one more time at at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. All right, what's this all about? Why is Herod so troubled that these magi are looking for the king of the Jews? Well, just think about it. Who was the acting king of the Jews? It was Herod. Herod was the king of the Jews. Yeah, here's this entourage of magi. They're pulling up. They're here to worship the king, give him great gifts. But they're not talking about Herod. They're talking about some other king of the Jews. That does not sit well with Herod, the king of the Jews. This makes more sense when you know a bit about who Herod was. In 40 BC, Herod was declared by the Roman Senate to be the king of the Jews. And he held on to his rule at all costs. He was ruthless in his desire to remain king. Anyone who threatened his rule was dealt with in the worst way. One time, he had his wife's brother drowned. And then later, it doesn't get any worse than this, he forced his wife to commit suicide in addition to her mother and two of their sons that they had together. That's what... That was pretty par for the course when it came to these Roman rulers trying to hold on to the rule. Anyone who threatened their kingship, their rule, would be dealt with in the harshest of ways. Herod died about a year after Jesus was born. But before his death, he knew this. He knew no one was going to mourn him. He was hated. He knew it. So as, as one last act of cruelty, this is what he did in Jerusalem. He had some of the most prominent citizens arrested and imprisoned. Then he gave a decree that the moment he died, they were to be executed. So that truly no one would mourn him. There would be no voices mourning him in Jerusalem. Cruel. And this act of cruelty was eclipsed only by his his mass murder of all the children in Bethlehem, the boys two years old and younger, which we learn about in Matthew chapter 2. So this is Herod. Herod the king, Herod the great as he called himself, which you can see is not a fitting title. There are several Herods in the Bible, by the way. This is the first, the father of them all. He would literally kill his own family members to keep his grasp on the throne. 
So now you can imagine, you can imagine why he was so upset when these magi stroll into town looking for another king of the Jews. That's not going to work for Herod. The last thing Herod needed was another insurrection by the Jews, a new king figure who would only rally the people against him. They hated him enough already. And so verse 3 says he was literally shaken up. He was stirred. He was agitated. He was disturbed by this. And he was going to be on a mission to, to stop it, to make sure this doesn't happen. It says all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And that's because they knew. If Herod was disturbed, bloodshed was sure to follow. They knew what was coming. All right, let's get to verse 4 now. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Stop there. Herod's on a mission. Step one, he wants to find out where is this Messiah to be born. He assembles together the chief priests and the scribes of the people. I think you probably know who these people are. The chief priests, the priests, they were the overseers of the temple. But they were terribly corrupt. Most of them were Levites. The chief priests were super corrupt by this time. And there is more than one of them which is against the law. They basically threw out the law of God and started piling on their own traditions, making up rules and regulations for the temple services. The scribes were the Pharisees, you know them, the lawyers. They were the masters of the law. They were also corrupt, and they were also terribly legalistic. Nonetheless, they knew the scriptures well, and Herod asked them, where's the Messiah going to be born? Notice, he understands that these magi were looking not just for any kid, but the Messiah. He knew that this was supposed to be the Messiah, but that didn't stop him. Keep that in mind. And without difficulty, the, the priests and the scribes, they give him an answer. So where's this, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, no-brainer. Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judah. They quote him, the very well-known prophecy in Micah 5.2, which predicts that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. And they know it just like that. They, they spit it out. So Herod gets his information. He finds out where this Messiah is going to be born. But he's not done on his quest for information. He knows where it's going to take place, he still needs to find out how old is he? How, when was he born? So now he's going to go to the Magi to find out how old this Messiah is supposed to be. Look at verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And notice, Herod, he's not interested in the purpose of the star. It's almost like he believes it. He believes, look, yeah, you guys saw a star. Great, I believe that. But he doesn't care about it. He just wants to know when it showed up. He just wants to know when the star appeared. Also, notice how everything he's doing, it's in secret. He pulled the Magi aside secretly to have this conversation. It's, it's like he has secret plans going on that he doesn't want other people to know about. 
Now what? Does, does Herod want to worship this newborn king too? Well, not so much, but that's what he wants the Magi to believe. So he tells them to go on their way to find the child, to report back to him under the pretense that he too will come and worship the new king. And you all know that's not going to happen. Now for now, Herod sinks into the background and we have a new character emerging in this passage. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice a few things here. The star reappears, implying that it did not lead them from the east. Now, however, the star is there guiding them on that five-mile journey south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Not, Not far. The star finally stands over the place where the child was. This place, where is it? Is it a barn? Not a barn. You see verse 11. It says a house. So they go into the house now and they find the child. But just the sight of the star, when they saw the star finally stop moving, they knew. They knew they had finally reached their destination, which really wasn't a destination at all. It was was the child, the, the newborn king. And so they rejoiced already. They ran to the house. They found the child and his mother. They fall to the ground and they worship him. Notice, they don't worship Mary. Mary's of no significance, contrary to what Catholics might tell you. They worship the child. Then they come then come the presents, which are expressions of worship, gold, frankincense, myrrh. You know these, gold, you know what gold is. Frankincense is a costly scented incense used for special occasions. Myrrh is a costly perfume coming from a tree in Arabia. And together, these items were of significant wealth. And surely they enabled Joseph and Mary to take care of Jesus and their family from then on. Well, we can finish this paragraph now. Finally, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. God communicates with these magi in a dream. And notice, they're not alarmed. This doesn't seem out of the ordinary, implying that this is not the first time God has spoken to them in a dream. This time, though, God tells them not to return to Herod, for he has devious plans, so they return another route, avoiding Jerusalem, heading home east. And that's it. That's the Christmas story as Matthew tells it. These are the facts, the true facts behind what really happened. Is this how you remembered it? Matthew 1 tells us the circumstances of Christ's birth. Matthew 2 tells us what really happened in the days to follow. Now, forget what you saw in that school play. Forget what, you, what all the Christmas carols tell you. If you want to get things right, you have to go back to the source. Hopefully, just, just pacing through these verses helps you straighten out the real Christmas story. At the very least, now you know, if you want the truth, you always have to go back to Scripture. 
But we're, we're not quite finished because, like I said at the first, there, there's a message attached to this story. These events recorded in Matthew, they're not just bare facts, but God gives them to teach a spiritual lesson. And that lesson's there. You just have to look for it. And it's so rich. And for the remainder of our time, I want to show you this lesson from Matthew 2. As you can probably guess, it's all about Jesus. It's all about what you do with Jesus. It's all about how you respond to Jesus. This lesson is plain to see. I want to show it to you now. I want you to learn now the three different ways you can respond to Jesus. Pay attention to this. The three different ways you can respond to Jesus. Way number one, the first one, is the response of Herod. The response of Herod. How did Herod respond to Jesus? Of course, he wanted to worship him, right? Not so much. Now, Herod wanted to worship himself. He was into self-worship. He wanted the, the power and the prestige for himself. He wanted the worship. He felt threatened by Jesus. How, how could there be another king of the Jews? And he was offended by these magi. Here they come into town wanting to worship the king, give gifts to the king, but they're not talking about him. That, that just stabbed his pride. Herod wanted to be greater than Jesus. He, he wanted all the power to himself. And so when he found out about this newborn king, what did he do? He sought to destroy him. Last verse. Look down at verse 16 now. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Although Jesus would not have been two years old, most likely Herod didn't want to take any chances, just in case he was being tricked by the Magi a second time. The point is, what a vicious response. And, And get this, Herod knew that Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. He understood what he was doing. And so his actions of hatred, they're not just against these children, they're also against God. His hatred was not just for some newborn king, it was for God himself. Is this how you have responded to Jesus? Do you hate him? Do you reject him? Many people in the world today still loathe Jesus, that they hate him, that they reject him. Because his very presence, if he is real, condemns them as sinners before a holy God. And they can't escape that. Their pride and self-worship clouds their minds and they refuse to humble themselves and go to Jesus for forgiveness. And needless to say, this is the wrong response to Jesus. And as Herod found out, and as all who reject him, will find out if you reject Christ as your Savior, he will greet you as your judge. This is the first response you can make to Jesus, the wrong response, the response of rejection, the response of Herod. Secondly, the the second response you can make to Jesus, the response of the Jews. Did you notice that? The response of the Jews. 
We saw earlier, all of Jerusalem, the whole city, they knew what was happening. These magi are in town. They're looking for the new king, the Messiah. They all knew about it. And the rulers, the priests, the scribes, they also knew what was going on. They even knew where it was supposed to happen. Bethlehem. It's no-brainer. He's going to be in Bethlehem. This just brings up one question. So, why didn't they go to Bethlehem? Why didn't all these Jews accompany the Magi to go worship their newborn king? Why didn't they seek out Jesus to worship him too? I mean, of all people, forget the Gentiles, shouldn't these Jews go and try and at least check it out to see if their king had truly just been born? That their Messiah? But here's the thing. Not a single one of them goes. Not one person that we know about goes to find Jesus. So why not? Because they didn't care. And they did not believe. The second response is the response of unbelief. Unbelief. These Jews were not true worshipers. They were not truly looking for the Messiah. They did not have true faith. Think about this. The Gentile Magi were willing to travel 700 miles to worship the King of the Jews. But the Jews themselves would not travel five miles to go check it out and to find their king. This is none other than the response of unbelief. They did not care about the birth of their own king. And ironically, Jesus would not be called king of the Jews again until the day of his death. And some 30 years later, it would be these same Jews who would crucify their king and Messiah in their unbelief. God is looking for true worshipers, those who trust him, who believe in him. Is that your response to Jesus? Or, or, or are you like these Jews? You don't believe. Or are you indifferent? You're uninterested. You just don't care. You don't think it's that important. You're fine with living your life as you please, maybe doing some religious things here and there. But 364 days out of the year, you pretty much ignore Jesus. You're not that big a deal. Not a part of your life. It's just none other than the response of unbelief. And this also is the wrong response to Jesus. And again, those who refuse to believe in him as their Savior and truly trust him with their whole lives, thinking they can get by with a here or there religious commitment, they may reject him as their Savior. They will one day accept him as their judge. This is the, the second way you can respond to Jesus. It's a response of unbelief. It's a response of the Jews. And this just leaves now that third response, the third way you can respond to him. It's the response of the Magi. Finally, we have the response of the Magi to Jesus, which was one of true worship. And this response is all the more staggering when you realize who they were. They were Gentiles. They were Gentiles coming from a pagan society. The Jews looked down on them like, like dogs. Yet somehow God revealed himself to them they became true worshipers of the true God. Surely they even knew that this one born king of the Jews would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Luke 2.42 This Jewish Messiah was their Messiah. And the Magi foreshadow God's plan of saving not just the Jews, but people from all nations as well. These Magi had the response of belief and worship 
And furthermore, their worship was full of sacrifice. Traveling 700 miles is no small thing. Their worship was full of giving. They gave considerable wealth as an expression of their love. And their worship was full of joy. Remember when they they found the house? Matthew says, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a very redundant phrase. He's just piling on all these superlatives. He's just saying like they were very super happy to be there. Just as much as he could say. You know, when Herod found out about the Messiah, he didn't rejoice. When the Jews found out about the Messiah, that they didn't rejoice. It was these Gentiles. They found out. And they rejoiced. Verse 11, when they saw Jesus, what did they do? They fell down to the ground and they worshipped. Why would they do that? Because that's how you treat a king. Then they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Why would they do that? Because that is how you treat a king. Now, where was Herod's gift? Where, where was the Jews' worship? It was only the Magi who came, who sacrificed, who journeyed, who gave, and who rejoiced, all because they believed in the newborn king, and they wanted to worship him. And this is the response of worship. This is the response of love. This is the response of faith. This is the only response that brings salvation. Which of these three responses best characterizes you this morning? Do you reject him? Do you not believe in him? You're just indifferent, not a big deal. Or do you accept him with faith and joy and worship? Are you here this morning because someone dragged you? And it's it's Christmas time, you feel obliged to come to church once a year. But yeah, you really don't care about the Lord. Or or maybe you're here every Sunday. You come regularly and faithfully, but but church is a drag for you. There's no rejoicing in your worship. You're just going through the motions because you think it, it pleases God or pleases someone else. Why, why are you here? Why do you come this Sunday, any Sunday? It doesn't matter. Why are you here? Understand, God is only looking for true worshipers who rightly respond to Jesus. That's it. That's all there is. And understand the stakes. Well, what's this all about? Why did Jesus come? He came, as Matthew 1.21 says, to save people from their sins and the consequences of those sins. This child grew up to become a man, and that man lived to die, die on a cross. And he died that death so that you might be forgiven and saved, you who have been separated from God because of your sin, a sin that you cannot repay. Being a good person means nothing to God. Coming to church, reading your Bible, God doesn't care. It's not getting you to heaven. Christ on the cross paid the penalty for your sins such that now you can have eternal life. But this only comes if you respond rightly to the king. So have you believed? Have you looked to Jesus in faith, committing yourself to him, the entirety of your being committed to him, looking to him for salvation and reconciliation with God? Or do you wish to just remain on the outside looking in? Today is the day of salvation. Choose Christ 
right now if you haven't already and live. Live a new and transformed life in him. Christmas is in a few days, the day we use to celebrate and remember that the birth of Christ. I just want to encourage you and remind you, this year, every year, to spend that time not rejoicing over the presents, not rejoicing over the traditions, not rejoicing over the food or the get-togethers, but rejoicing over the Savior, the newborn King. Make certain that your response is one of true worship and be like these magi who, because of their faith, they were truly wise men indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, you... You are the Almighty God, the, the Maker and the Redeemer. And we remember now how a couple thousand years ago you sent your Son to this world to become a man, to take on human flesh and to be born, born of a virgin, supernaturally coming into this world. And we pause to celebrate, to remember, to worship. We, we want to be like those magi who fall at your feet, who worship, who sacrifice, who gives gifts, and just rejoice exceedingly because of the gift we've been given the gift of life in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for living, and then for dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins. That is the ultimate Christmas gift, the ultimate gift there is. Didn't deserve, did not earn. Nothing we could do to be in your good graces, yet by your grace you, you gave us new life in him. And it only comes by rightly responding to him. Lord, I pray for those who have rejected Christ, or who are just indifferent, who just don't believe, don't care, not a big deal, that, that they would be convicted, that they would change. Life is short, and the day may end tomorrow. We pray for them that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ in a true commitment now, in faith, trusting upon him, and then just devoting their whole lives to following him truly as your word sets forth. And for those who have followed Christ, may they rejoice this Christmas season in him. Traditions are fine around this time of year, but may they not lose sight of what really matters, and that's what brings us together, what saves us. It's the newborn king. We come to worship. In your name we pray. Amen.